Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, why the Canadian Navy is going all woke on us. Also, why Iran's coronavirus lies are putting Canadians at risk. And how a new company is helping Canadians get access to American health care. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Yes, welcome everyone to another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North and part of a country that is apparently making sure a woke Navy is more important than anything else facing the Canadian Armed Forces. That is the Canadian identity. We have to have a woke, progressive, inclusive Navy because you can't fight enemies of Canada without a little diversity. When they say diversity is our strength, they actually mean diversity is apparently our only weapon. That's what we're going towards right now. This story was a True North exclusive, and one of the reasons I absolutely love True North as much as I do. The Navy is considering a gender-neutral alternative to the junior seaman ranks. The ranks that are up for a title change are Ordinary Seaman, Able Seaman, Leading Seaman, and Master Seaman. And I know that the high school version of myself is giggling inside as I say all of those for reasons I'll let you figure out yourself. This comes some... Well, this is actually a story we learned of through people in the Navy that learned they were being consulted or at least... uh, pretending to be consulted by the powers that be as they look at changing these names. And they had put out a consultation invitation. And the <laughs> understandably, the naval seamen that are impacted by this don't seem to be too bothered by it. So they were all laughing about it and mocking it. And then it got passed to us and we looked into it. And the Department of National Defense was actually quite proud of this. Uh, Lieutenant Jamie Breslin, who's a spokesperson for the DND, said that the ranks are going to be potentially changed to reflect the more progressive character of the force. And this is what Breslin said. The RCN, the Royal Canadian Navy, one of Canada's top employers in 2019, according to Forbes, prides itself on inculcating an inclusive, diverse, gender-neutral, and safe workplace Therefore, it was determined by naval leadership that an organization that has long since had gender-neutral terms for its personnel, sailor or shipmate, needs to reconsider some few rank titles that are rich in history but perhaps not reflective of the modern progressive service that is the RCN today. Now, we don't know what it is they'll be changing them to. Will it be ordinary sailor, able sailor, leading sailor, master sailor? Maybe. Will they just switch to the Army and Air Force ranks and have, you know, private corporal, master corporal? Who knows? But the whole point is that the priorities they're laying out, an inclusive, diverse, gender-neutral, and safe workplace. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a safe workplace, obviously. I would argue that if you are in the military... Uh, you're already throwing caution to the wind with the idea that it's a safe workplace. There are real threats, and I don't think anyone will be like, oh, you know what, we're on this submarine, we survived the torpedo, that was fine. But you know what really makes me feel unsafe? That ordinary seaman title that I have. That's not gender neutral, that's not inclusive, that's not diverse. I feel unsafe. You know, I know a lot of people who have served and do serve in the armed forces, and they are among the most resilient let things roll off your back type of people imaginable. I don't think that any of them 
are leading this charge. In fact, I think a lot of them are offended by it. I've had a lot of veterans in particular and a couple of active duty, uh, not Navy people, but active duty military people that have responded to this story saying, this, like, we didn't ask for this. This is not something we want. This is not something we sought. We aren't interested in this. But this is the problem with the cult of diversity and the cult of wokeness is that it imposes it on people, even those who aren't looking for it. Because these types of things historically can breed resentment against women in the Navy because it makes them look like they're the ones demanding it. When a lot of uh, women in the Navy, I'm sure, are happy to be called ordinary seamen or able seamen in the same way that chairman of the board. I mean, it doesn't refer to a man as an individual with an XY chromosome makeup. It refers to person in the same way that you'd have mankind before Trudeau went and made that people kind or something. So all of this stuff I, I find absolutely absurd. And again, the women are not the ones pushing this. It's it's always like the feminist men allies that are pushing this. You, you can never trust the feminist male allies, I can tell you, because the people that call themselves that, the people that say, oh, this is inclusive and diverse and all of that are always the ones that will break your heart. The thing is, when I think it was in 1999 or 2000, no, it was 2001. It was 2001, and I'll tell you why I remember that in a moment. There was a, a big push at CBC and in the media in Canada in general to change fishermen to fisher people, to fishers, to fisher persons. I mean, they wanted to change fishermen because it was, again, in 2001, offensive and not inclusive and not gender neutral and all of that. And CBC ended up having its ombudsman write a 2,000-word feature, a 2,000-word essay about the whole introspection that CBC had done to uh, determine whether fishermen was offensive and they could change it. And the one thing that the Globe and Mail found, which changed it and then changed it back to fishermen, was that the females who worked in the fishing industry, the fisher women, actually loved being called fishermen because that was what it was. They didn't want this thing that they had worked their lives to become to be changed, especially on their account when they didn't want it. So all of these cases of extreme politically correct language changes come back to just absurd things. I mean, there was in, I think it was Sacramento or San Francisco back in the 90s, they changed manhole to maintenance cover for the same reason. And I don't know if they ever changed that one back, but it, it's ridiculous. It's like when you start calling a plumber a porcelain technician just because you're trying to put a positive spin on it. No, you have to call a spade a spade. And the military is nothing if not steeped in tradition. So if you take the way that tradition, because you say that tradition no longer applies when you want to be, here are the terms, inclusive, diverse, gender neutral, and safe, you're actually tremendously insulting the people that wear that uniform, the people that have gone to war, the people that have served in peacetime who didn't feel unsafe by a word, unsafe by the word man, which again, like chairman, is not referring to a male. It's referring to a person, mankind. And this is something that you could say is heteronormative and patriarchal and all of these other things, but no one who actually matters thinks that. No one who matters is thinks that. Like the type of people that would care about this are not the type of people that are enlisting 
in the military. That's one of the big problems. And I would love to hear whether this is actually something that has been driven by the defense minister's office, by the Trudeau government, or if this is just the bureaucracy of the Department of National Defense trying to figure out what to do. I would absolutely love to see that because I don't think that anyone in uniform, and I could be wrong, I don't think that anyone in uniform actually cared enough about this that they wanted to make this their priority. This is just not the type of thing that soldiers, sailors, and airmen, air people, that air people care about. Uh, but this is why the whole political correctness frontier is, is such an important one. There was a, a story out of the UK that I read of in The Telegraph where Sheffield University has had a free speech society that wanted to set up shop there. This society has been told it is a, quote, red risk, and it needs to have all its external speakers vetted and approved. So the Free Speech Society, if it wants to bring in a speaker, they have to submit an application to the student union three weeks in advance, and full and final approval from the school is required if they want that speaker to be invited. So the irony is that Ewan Somerville, who was the politics student that founded this, said he thought that the Free Speech Society was important because there was, in his view, creeping censorship on campus. And how does the school respond to this by saying, nope, we get all final approval of any speaker you want to bring in. So if they want to bring in Katie Hopkins or Tommy Robinson or Nigel Farage or anyone British or non-British to speak about free speech, the school, the Politburo of the F, uh, the academic institution of Sheffield University, and you can't spell uh, Sheffield University without a big Chef U. Uh, so Chef U, as we're going to call it, uh, now gets final approval over any speaker. So it's very interesting because clearly the school is saying by doing this that there's no real free speech issue and we're going to darn well prove it by ensuring that you don't have any pro-free speech speakers come without our approval and and you're supposed to feel grateful if they grant approval i mean that's the problem of these ideological gatekeepers is that they make you basically live your life at their mercy because you can't do anything unless they bestow it upon you and speech is not a privilege Free speech is not a privilege. Speech is absolutely a right. So the second that you have to go through some needling, meddling, useless bureaucrat for free speech, it is no longer free speech. It's not free speech, but it's not free speech with an asterisk. It's not free speech with a caveat. It's either free speech or it's not free speech. And these limitations make it fundamentally unfree. This is not a reasonable limit on free speech. And you may say, if you're not British, why am I talking about this? Well, Britain is always five to 10 years ahead. Europe is five to 10 years ahead of North America. Now, Ezra Levant thinks that, uh, you know, it's five years ahead of Canada, 10 years ahead of the US. I think that those might be very wide, uh, very extended examples, a, a bit of an overstatement perhaps, because I, I don't think that we have, as a general rule, much of a difference between what's happening on academic institutions in North America versus what's happening here. I mean, at least they're giving you the illusion that your speaker might be approved at some institutions. They're just saying, no, you can't have a controversial speaker. You have to spend, you know, $40,000 in security costs, or you need to have it off site, or you need to do all of these other things. And look, you are going to see 
a boiling point and more of those boiling points if this type of stuff keeps up, because no one can have any legitimacy as an academic institution if they are insisting that they have to have a bottleneck on speakers. I mean, what's an institution like this supposed to be about? Learning, education, part of that involves hearing perspectives, and as the cliche goes, sometimes perspectives that are different from your own. And if you are not prepared to do that, doesn't matter how you couch it. It doesn't matter whether you say, oh, but it's about anti-racism, oh, it's about this, it's about diversity, inclusion, wokeness, all of this stuff. If you think that your right to not be offended trumps someone's right to free speech, you do not believe in free speech. And, and you know what? It used to be that a lot of these people would say, oh, no, 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 I do support free speech, but now they're not even saying that. Now these people are saying, well, free speech is a right-wing concept. Free speech is the patriarchy. Free speech is racist. I mean, th these are actual things that people are saying. This is not an exaggeration. People are actually making that point, and it's coming from the academy. It's coming from people on campuses who are saying that, oh, well, free speech is just this antiquated concept that doesn't respect marginalized views, and it just furthers the marginalization and all of that. And it, it's very difficult to defend free speech when you can't even find a common premise in that free speech is a good thing, which is why it's so important to push back against this. So good on these students for having a free speech society because you need to have an advocacy group on campuses clearly to promote free speech. And I would love to see more of these. And if you do it and you're a student, tell me and we'll talk about what you're doing. And if you get any pushback from the school, I will come there myself and speak with or without approval. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back. If you have been following for the last week, you know we're tracking the amount of episodes we can go through without me contracting the coronavirus. And once again, no coronavirus. So thanks very much for all of you who have been wishing well on me and to the three people that wished I got it. Well, maybe better luck next week. In any case, the coronavirus update this week is a bit of an interesting one because when I spoke about it on last week's show or one of last week's shows, I had a lot of, I, I don't want to say a lot of backlash. I had some backlash from people who insist that by talking about it, I'm buying into the mainstream media hysteria. So there seems to be two camps here. There are the people that are buying three industrial uh, tons worth of toilet paper and Purell from Costco uh, because they think they're going to die. The people that are wearing gas masks around. And then there are the people that think it's all like a deep state conspiracy. And it's funny, I actually I went to my I went to get a haircut. Uh, when was it on Saturday or Friday of last week? And my I don't know if she's a hairdresser or a barber. I mean, I, I, it seems weird to say I went to a hairdresser because my hair is not particularly dressed. But whatever she is, a uh, lovely woman, a bit of a conspiracy theorist, though. So she was saying that she thinks the coronavirus is an American invention. And I'm like, oh, like, you think it's fake news? And she thinks, no, like the, the Americans, she thinks, made the coronavirus. But she also loves Donald Trump, which I found odd, because then I was thinking, well, wait, like, it's one thing to love Trump and think that the coronavirus is no big deal. It's another thing to think the U.S. made it and hate the U.S. She loves the U.S. and thinks the U.S. did it, which makes me a little bit curious. Like, is she pro coronavirus in any case. So I, I'm in between here. And I think I said this last week, I, I'm not panicking. I'm washing my hands probably a bit more than I normally do, but I should be washing them that often anyway. So I'll try to keep that up. 
And I also live a life that is not insular, but I, I'm not in crowds. I don't take public transit generally, with, with the exception of when I'm traveling, which, I mean, if I'm going to get it, it's going to be on an airplane or at an airport. But I do think it's interesting how other people are, are choosing to navigate this. My personal favorite, a letter to the advice columnist in Slate, should I pause my open marriage because of the coronavirus? Uh, the rationale being that uh, the letter writer's mother is immunocompromised. Is it unreasonable to ask my husband not to swap fluids with his girlfriend until the coronavirus blows over? Well, at the risk of sounding overly judgmental, which I'm entirely okay with doing right now, uh, you should probably be pausing your open marriage for reasons that have nothing to do with the coronavirus at all. So problem solved. You can move on there. Another one in a club in Los Angeles in New York City called... It's really weird. It's spelled S-N-C-T-M. So I'm assuming it's called Sanctum, but it would be like Snooktum, Snooktum. Uh, Sanctum, I guess, is what it is, but I'd like to buy a vowel. They are apparently not canceling their planned orgies, or as the New York Post, page six says, they are thrusting onwards in the face of coronavirus, uh, despite the fact that concerts are being canceled, Austin's South by Southwest is being canceled, lots of things are being canceled, including a British Marmalade Festival, by the way. And, like, for the Brits to cancel a Marmalade Festival is like the Olympics being canceled to other people. Sanctum has an orgy coming up in Los Angeles, another one in Manhattan, and they're saying they're still going ahead, but they are going to allow uh, hand sanitizer and extra soap to be distributed. I feel it's not the hands that are going to be the issue at a mass uh, LA or Manhattan sex party. I've never been to one, but again, I feel the hands are not the primary vehicle of concern there. And another coronavirus story that's kind of fun. Uh, this is, I think, a, a great example of American litigiousness at its absolute finest. A couple aboard the Grand Princess cruise ship is suing Princess Cruise Lines for $1 million. They're not even off the ship yet. Uh, it's a Florida couple, of course. And what better way to pass the time than by filing a lawsuit? Ronald and Eva Weisberger of Broward County seeking a million dollars in damages. Two of the 3,500 passengers and crew members aboard, which means they should have just gone in canvas to do like a class action or something. I mean, you've got the time, but I guess the whole point is they don't want to see people. So maybe that's the best way to do it after all. So interestingly enough, I had a column on the weekend at TNC.news about the Iranian problem here, because next to China and South Korea, Iran has more confirmed deaths than any other country due to coronavirus. And unlike China, Iran actually has a very rapid growth rate. In China, the country says things are leveling off a bit, and the official numbers seem to reflect that. But with the case of Iran, there is very conflicting information about it, whereas the government is saying there's one set of casualties that's less than 200 right now. And other groups like the uh, Mujahideeni Kelk, which is an Iranian resistance group, they say from their sources on the ground, in the government, in hospitals, that the number is well over 2,000, I think up to like 2,600 and rapidly rising. And even if you don't accept MEK's numbers, 
the BBC Persia had at one point received reports from healthcare facilities that the numbers were about six times what the government had acknowledged. And that was a couple of weeks ago that BBC Persia had reported that. So the Iranian regime, which is just pretending that everything's fine, pretending it's got things under control, is seeing cases in all provinces of Iran. Uh, the Iranian regime is arresting people for talking about it. There's one area, uh, I forget the name of the city, where the state has actually barred people from talking about numbers, from talking about stats, including officials. You've got MPs that have contracted it. You've got other MPs that are saying they're, the government's lying about this. Uh, you had one guy who was arrested for filming the body pile up in the morgue to say, well, hang on, these morgues and the numbers here aren't matching the numbers the government's giving. And the one point that I maintain, even if you think that the coronavirus is overblown or COVID-19 is overblown, is that a lot of what we know about it has to accept at face value numbers from countries that are not respectable truth tellers, China and Iran being chief among them. So I don't trust China's numbers. I don't trust China's death rate. I don't trust Iran's numbers and I don't trust Iran's death rate. So if you have those as among the, the highest of the high in the official tallies, even you have to assume that the unofficial tallies are going to be much higher. And a lot of the Western response is based on those official numbers. So that's the issue. And that's the variable. And you can be skeptical about that without being in a full-blown panic. And that was where I was kind of annoyed with a lot of the people that I had responding to my column saying that, well, I mean, you're just taking the mainstream media panic position now. No, I, I'm saying that we can't trust what these dictatorships are telling us because their goal is regime survival. I mean, the goal of, of the Iranian regime is to ensure its own survival, which means that it needs to do what it can to pretend that it has things under control. So I would absolutely adore adore nothing more than to move past coronavirus, have no more cases, have it just level off and have no concerns. Right now, that's not happening. And, and when people are dying from it, you can't say that it's a media panic. You could say that there's some hysteria around it. I saw a video the other day of people literally racing through Costco, which I thought was a bit excessive because I try to avoid Costco in general, which, by the way, has uh, done away with free samples, which was like the only reason I ever Ever went to Costco. I didn't actually care about buying, uh, you know, 37,000 rolls of toilet paper. I just wanted to have like a, you know, stone cold bite of a taquito or something. So in any case, I would love to see us move beyond this. But no, you can't say that nothing is happening. You can't say that nothing is happening. You can say that you think it's overblown. You can say that you think it's overhyped, but you can't say that nothing's happening. And you also can't say that we should be accepting at face value what China and Iran are saying about coronavirus, because these countries have proven themselves to be liars in the past, and they fundamentally do not value human life, which means that when something like this comes up that does threaten human life, you can't trust what they're doing because they care more about their own PR than they do about the health and well-being. And the Iranian death rate seems to be significantly higher than it is even in other countries, which again brings us to the question of what the heck is going on there. So if you want to read the column, I articulated where I'm approaching this from. It's called 
Iran's coronavirus lies are putting Iranians and Canadians at risk. And the reason I say the bit about Canadians is because most of the recent cases in Canada are from Iranians, people that have come from Iran to Canada, thus proving that perhaps we should have been putting some travel restrictions in place, which virtually every country around the world is doing, but Canada says, oh, a virus knows no borders. That's, that's not going to do anything. Well, when we have the vast majority of our cases being imported rather than local transmission, it would seem travel restrictions are entirely appropriate at this point. We've got to take a break when we come back. More of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. You know, the Canadian healthcare system is, for a lot of Canadians, I, I think a big blind spot. And I, and I don't want to say that our healthcare system is akin to that of a third world country. We have world-class healthcare in Canada. I say this as someone who lives in a city that has an incredible teaching hospital and university healthcare. But the thing is, the, the care itself is good. The access to it, a lot of the times, is very inadequate. And there's a reason that you have so many Canadians that choose to go and seek health care abroad, specifically in the United States, especially Canadians in border communities, but even Canadians that live far away from the border that have to get on a plane and go to the U.S., now, if you think navigating your own country's healthcare system can be difficult, imagine those navigating the healthcare system of another country. And where there's a will, there's a way. There's actually a, a company based in Halifax specializing in connecting Canadians to American healthcare. And I learned of this in an interview done by my good friend Chris Sims last week. And I wanted to speak with one of the co-founders of this organization, Health Vantis, directly. One of the co-founders, Christy Yvonne, joins me on the line now. Christy, it is great to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. Yes, yeah, same here, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Now, I just mentioned at the beginning of the show that one of the challenges with healthcare in Canada is that it's great until it isn't. And, and there are lots of people that have no issues navigating the system. They have great care. They can access it. But there are a lot of people, I know several of them, and I myself have had serious wait list issues before, that are not able to navigate the system. They're not able to get access to care. So when I heard that this was really a, a part of what created Health Vantas. I was very intrigued and I, I, I know there's a story behind this. So tell me how this came about. Yeah. Um, so Leanna and I um, are friends and um, we both had uh, experienced um, delays in the healthcare system and were met with challenges. And we continued to kind of talk about this whole process. And for me, um, the first experience I had with it was when my son was an infant. Um, he was around six months old and he all of a sudden stopped wanting to eat and was dropping weight. At and at the time, I was new to Nova Scotia and had not established a family doctor um, and was unable to get one. Nobody was taking new patients at the time. And so my only option was to go to a walk-in clinic. And I wasn't really getting any help there. And um, eventually, after a, a breakdown <laughs> with one of my uh, other friends, she um, she ended up asking her family doctor that she had been going to since she was a child 
if they if she could take um, my family on, and she agreed to. So I was finally able to get a, a family physician um, and a referral out to a pediatrician, um, which took quite some time. And by this time, he had um, dropped enough weight that he was considered failure to thrive. And he was actually a, a normal, healthy baby. He was in the 50th percentile. And by this time, he had dropped off the growth chart. And usually when you have a, a drop of even like 10%, um, you know, when you're, you're an infant or even a you know a child, that's significant. Um, you know, and so here he had dropped, you know, over 50%. And, you know, was not able to get him to eat anything. And I, you know, just could not figure out why, um, you know, I didn't get very much help or um, direction when I was at this particular pediatrician's office. Um, you know, I had requested, you know, to see another one. Um, and after about six months of this, I decided to um, take him to uh, the U.S. and have him evaluated. And so I flew to um, Charlotte, North Carolina, to a pediatrician I had um, had seen before. I was uh, from Charlotte, um, Scotia, prior to that. And so I uh, went, and she had me into a pediatric GI doctor the next day. Um, and this uh, doctor had diagnosed him pretty much right on the spot. She felt like he had reef which is a, you know, very uh, treatable, very common disorder in babies. Um, you know, the difference is that, you know, a lot of times the um, infants will have like a projectile type of, um, you know, reflux so you can physically see it. But in my son's case, his was more internal. And so he was associating the food, you know, with that burning sensation, which is why he wouldn't eat. And so they um, put us on a, um, a medication for him. And within a couple weeks time, he started eating. Um, you know, and so that was kind of my first, um, you know, bout with uh, dealing with, you know, delays and not really be being able to get the um, treatment, you know, that I was hoping for, um, especially for my child. Um, I also, you know, personally continued to have, um, some other issues with delays and trying to, to get um, some tests for myself um, that took 10 months. And, um, you know, and, and Leanne and I you know, would discuss this all of the time, you know, the frustration. And we're like, you know, what do people do when they're put in a position like that? You know, where do you go? And, you know, who can you talk to about this? And, um, you know, and we started looking into it and realized that there were a lot of Canadians that um, did travel outside of Canada to have care um, simply because, because, you know, they were experiencing um, similar experiences that we had. They, you know, the, the delays or, um, you know, the fact that they couldn't get a particular uh, type of treatment. We kind of discussed it like, you know, gosh, you know, we know a lot about how the U.S. healthcare system works because we both both had um, lived in the U.S. and experienced uh, U.S. healthcare, and you know had also you know lived in Canada and ex experienced how it worked there, and thought that we might be able to um, provide some kind of value to Canadians in being able to navigate that system should they want an option to um, um, you know to travel and have their care done in a quicker manner. 
And that's kind of how, you know, Health Vantis came about. And, um, you know, we're into our third year now and, um, you know, really enjoy what we're doing and the fact that we can help someone who's in a position that we were in because we understand how they feel. Um, and, you know, that's just kind of, yeah, where, where we started. Now, I know that you're not a healthcare provider. Your company is not. And I guess the question is, what is the service you're providing when people could do as you do, did, which was just call up a healthcare provider directly in the U.S.? Where does HealthVantas come in there? Yeah, so, yeah, we definitely are not. And we make sure, you know, to let people know that. We do get um, a lot of people thinking that we are an actual facility, which, you know, we're not. And, um, you know, basically where we come into play is uh, being able to make that connection to, um, you know, a facility that is of, uh, it's a reputable facility and is going to have, have quality of care. Um, you know, all the facilities that we're working with are ones that we've personally visited, visited and we've met the administration. So we've kind of vetted them. You know, that was one of important things to us was that, um, you know, if we were going to, um, you know, send somebody to a particular surgeon, we wanted to wanted to make sure that the quality of care was going to be there, that the credentials had been, um, you know, just so that whatever they were having done, you know, be it a surgery or a procedure, um, that it was going to be done in a safe manner. It wasn't that, you know, you're just throwing a dart. You know, the, the U.S. is a, a large country and, you know, there's a lot of options and choices there. And it's not to say that, you know, there's, you know, facilities out there that aren't up to par, but, you know, there can be, um, you know, and so that was important to us. Yeah, if you're going um, in blind and you have no idea what which the good player is, like there are very easily reputational challenges that you would have no idea of if you were just Googling for services in a particular jurisdiction. Right. Healthcare is really complex, too, and knowing how to navigate it. Um, even just, you know, getting a price on something, um, you know, that's that's a, a huge thing, obviously. Um, you know, procedures and surgeries are, are not cheap. And being able to get, you know, the cost of something can be really challenging. And you can kind of go in circles and spin your, spin your wheels, mm. um, you know, because not all facilities are going to give you the, like the total price. They might give you the cost of, you know, okay, well, this is what the surgeon is going to charge you to have this particular surgery, but you need to call the anesthesiology um, group that we utilize to find out what their charge is. And you need to call the facility where we do the surgery to find out what the facility charge will be. Um, you know, and so things, you know, that, that we had to keep in mind and um, in finding locations that they were able to provide us with the cost for everything, you know, because the last thing that you want is to, you know, tell somebody, okay, you can have the surgery for X amount of dollars and not realize, oh, wait, it didn't, you know, cover the cost of, you know, maybe the, the facility fee or, or something. I didn't want, you know, we didn't want anybody having surprise bills and things like that. And so, you know, the facilities that we um, had sought out were able to provide us with, um, you know, bundled pricing or kind of all-inclusive pricing um, so that the customer was aware of what the total package was going to cost. Um, you know, and, and also to help them kind of navigate, um, how it's going to work, um, you know, how many days you need to come out, 
um, you know, and also like the timeliness of it, the providers that we're working with are really good um, at working with um, the customer and getting them in on their time schedule. Um, you know, they usually can get them in within a couple weeks time flexible with us, um, knowing that they're coming from another country. So those are some of some of the things that we can provide. Um, you know, we also help book their travel. Um, you know, we can suggest hotels in the area um, that are aware that they're coming in, you know, for a surgery or procedure. Some of our doctors have even went um, as far as to go to the hotel room to check in on them, like on a daily basis to make sure that that they're doing okay and you know they just really provide that extra extra care um, just knowing that you know they're they're coming in from from Canada so I live in London Ontario and it's very common for people in my part of the country to drive across the border to Port Huron or Detroit to to get typically minor things maybe it's something diagnostic like an MRI or uh, something like that but you're in Atlantic Canada a lot further removed from the physical border so you're dealing with people from the local perspective that are flying and I, I know you aren't restricted in your customer base or client base to Atlantic Canada but do you find that a lot of the people that you get are, are not just coming from nearby the border. They're from a further removed part and they're flying in for health care. Yeah, no, I'd have to agree with that. Um, you know, definitely in Ontario, there's a lot more resources right across the border. There are a lot of providers there that are used to seeing Canadians um, come across the border. Yeah, but the billboards are like specifically marketing to Canadians when you're when you cross the border. It's actually quite something. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah, there are definitely those um, facilities there. And, um, you know, and in the U.S., you know, the healthcare care, it, it's a business. So, you know, it's run very different than the way it is in Canada. So they're very happy to treat um, Canadians for sure. Um, but yeah, in remote areas, uh, Nova Scotia, um, PEI, you know, Labrador, Newfoundland, um, even Alberta out west, um, you know, there's not as easily accessible um, facilities right across the border. So people do have to fly and travel to have that. And we, we try to keep that in mind, um, you know, when we're trying to find the right facility for them. Um, you know, we want to make sure that it's, you know, if we can find them a facility where they can have direct flight, um, you know, that's kind of our, our first go to, um, you know, if it's the right you know, facility for them. Um, you know, sometimes that's not always um, possible, but, you know, we do try to, to keep that in mind because um, there's also a risk in uh, flying after you've had a surgery. And so, you know, if we can try to keep the flight time at four hours or less, then they're, of, um, you know, developing something like a DVT or, you know, a type of complication reduces that risk. And so we, we certainly try to keep that in mind. Um, you know, and sometimes, you know, people do have a preference on where they go. They may have a vacation home somewhere or have family in a specific state or something like that. And so, you know, we do try to accommodate if we can. Um, it's not always possible, but um, if we can, we certainly do. But definitely try to find a facility that's going to be the most convenient to them to keep that travel travel time down. I think the stereotype of a Canadian who seeks 
healthcare in the U.S. The the, the negative stereotype that I, I think is peddled about this is someone who's very wealthy and very impatient. And I've talked to people that have been very middle class that have sought treatment in the U.S. And I mean, they've spent a lot of money doing it, but they've done it because they felt they had to. And in many cases, they did. And I'm curious if you see that in your client base. Are, are there a lot of just ordinary middle class people or is it very much a, an upper income uh, service that people are, you're in your view, seeing? Uh, to be honest, I would have to say it's almost all middle class. Um, you know, we may have had a, a couple cases where, you know, I mean, we obviously can't see, you know, what their income is, but it's, you know, the majority of the cases, you know, or people that have come to us, I would have to say are very middle class, um, you know, and finances are a huge, huge concern. And, you know, and we, again, try to keep that, you know, in mind and, you know, not everybody can afford um, to be able to to have treatment or to pay out of pocket like that. Um, and I, I do think that, you know, it it can be, you know, a, a burden on on some people, but they're willing to um, find the resources and sacrifice just because they, you know, their health is important to them and they want to feel better. They don't want to have to wait. But I would say at least, you know, in our experience, it, it's definitely more middle class people that are, you know, coming to us. It's um, I, I don't think we've had very many where, you know, money was no object. Let's put it that so way. So I guess with that being said, you've got people coming to you that are not having the disposable income or that the income, the, the money to do this is not something that can be covered by disposable income. What's the feeling, if you could characterize it, that most people seem to have by the time they come to you? You know, they, you know, a lot of people obviously are very frustrated. Um, you know, they, they all have had some kind of negative experience and, you know, they've had a runaround, they've been in circles, they've, you know, tried to get into specialists. Um, you know, they, they've kind of done what they can on their end and they're at their wits end of, you know, I just can't do this anymore. Um, you know, by the time that they've kind of come to us and, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of stress that is involved with that. Some of them have had to, um, you know, quit their job or scale their hours back because they, they're in pain or they're just not physically able to do, um, you know, the type of work that they were doing because of it. And I think that has a lot to do with it, you know, that, um, you know, for instance, you know, we had a customer that was a masseuse and she had an issue with her hand. You know, she could not do her job anymore because um, it was too painful. Um, you know, we, we see that a lot. And so there's frustration on, on their end and they just want to feel better. Um, you know, they just want to have somebody, you know, take their case and help them feel better. Um, you know, there's other situations where they don't have an answer. Um, you know, they've kind of been bounced from doctor to doctor and they don't know what's going on. And, you know, that may have been happening for a year or two. And they just want somebody to tell them what's going on and what's wrong with them so they can get the treatment and feel better. So I, I think like, you know, the number one um, feeling that we see is probably frustration. Um, yeah. Do you think that your business can exist because the healthcare in the U.S. is fundamentally better than Canada's healthcare? Or do you think it really just comes down to access? 
No, I, I think it's more about the access to it. Um, you know, you're you're able to get in to see a physician much quicker and, you know, much sooner. You're able to have a surgery, um, you know, in a much quicker manner. So I think it's more about that than anything else. It's, you know, it's not that, you know, the, that the doctors are any better than what they are in Canada. Um, there, every once in a while, you know, we'll come across a situation where um, a particular procedure might not be available in Canada yet. But, you know, the majority of the cases, it's just the access is all. Well, certainly it's good that you're there to walk people through what I, I know could be a very difficult uh, process if someone needs it. And like you said, by the time they come to you, they're they're in a, a place of vulnerability already. So uh, very interesting service. Was glad I learned about it uh, through my friend Chris Sims and was glad you were able to chat today. Christy Yvonne, one of the co-founders of Health Vantis, and the website is healthvantis.ca. And we've got it up on the uh, screen there. Thank you so much, Christy. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you so much, Andrew. I appreciate it as well. All right. Well, that does it for us today. My thanks to all who listened to the show, wrote in, contributed, supported, did whatever you did to let the show keep going on. My thanks to you and also, of course, to Christy for coming on. We'll be back in just a couple of days with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.